There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. This Sunday, Grace Potter rocks the stage at the Frederick Fairgrounds in Frederick, Maryland. I caught up with Potter to discuss her career and what it means to be a mother this Mother's Day. I'm so happy to be here. This is so cool. Now, uh, so you played the Frederick Fairgrounds, I guess it was, what was it, like last fall or the first time they did uh, this this drive-in. So uh, you kind of know what to expect. So tell me, first of all, like how, just how cool of an experience is it that, that you know, this that drive-ins are, are even a thing, A, and B, that it's allowing live music to continue in this crazy time. Yeah, no, I mean, it was fun because I got to kind of be the guinea pig, you know, um, and, and being that it was the first round of it, nobody knew what to expect, but I was just delighted by the entire experience. It was one of my favorite drive-in experiences yet on this whole COVID journey, um, but also, you know, it, it brings back this whole, like, Americana vibe that I've, I've always been attracted to drive-ins. I've always been kind of obsessed with like those old cool signs from like the Starlight Theater, you know, whatever. Right. And you find that you find us all kind of returning to form in some ways and getting back into our cars and becoming more of a culture of folks that, you know, hang out in their cars. And, and I, I really enjoy it. Yeah, everything's old. Everything old is new again. This thing that right. everyone thought was, you know, a dinosaur that was dead is suddenly like the rage. All They're popping up. The coolest everywhere. thing ever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You, you mentioned that um, it was is one of your favorite of the drive-ins you've played. Um, why is that? It's the setup. It's, it's more grand than a lot of the other ones. And it, it's just more set. It's set up well for live music because there's a pitch to, uh, you know, there's different levels. So people don't just sit on a flat parking lot. There's views and you can see the audience. I was able to really like from stage, look out and see everybody's pods and their cars. And, you know, some people were decking their cars out different ways and having themes to their, to their little areas that they were sitting in. And it's just, it's such a cool experience to stand on stage and know that all these folks, you know, put all this effort into coming out to see live music and that it's actually paying off. And, and it's, it, it feels, um, it felt official. We actually filmed a, a bit of a music video there as well. So, um, it was just a really cool sight to be at, you know. What real quick? What was the music video? What for? What song? It was the song "Each Other," which was a like I did a crowdsourced music video with a bunch of fans, and um, there's a lot of footage of fans and me and my family uh, playing and running around at the fairgrounds because it was just so picturesque, you know. Oh yeah, absolutely. What did, you mentioned family, um, you know, I know you're a, a relatively recent mother and, and Sunday's show is going to be Mother's Day. So does that make it any more special? <laughs> it does. It does. I was thinking about it. I think Mother's Day is, is something I've only just grown used to having be about me. It was always about my mom. So, um, it's, it's cool to be a mom now and to see 
how how special it really does feel to uh, to be honored and just have have a day for the mamas. So um, I think I'll have to I'll have to come up with some mama themed uh, tunes for for the day. <laughs> so uh, any moms that are out there in our listening audience, you know, what do you say to them? You know, give me give me a, you know, hey, moms, come on out for Mother's Day. Hey, mamas, if you want to feel like a real rockin' mama, come on out to my show on Sunday, Mother's Day. No better way to celebrate the mamas than to come rock out with me. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, you mentioned, um, you know, that, that for until now, you know, Mother's Day was always just about, you know, your mom. So take me back to, you know, the beginning where, uh, you know, you were born in, in where? It was in Vermont, right? Yeah, I'm from Waitsfield, Vermont. Um, actually technically faced in Vermont. Uh, it's the Mad River Valley. It's a, it's a community of artists and creative types, but also ski bums. Um, and it's a really, really wonderful community to grow up in. It's a small, small town. And, um, I got into music early on, but I was actually a terrible music student. Um, so I, I learned by ear and, um, and you, you really developed my, my sense of community through song and music and singing in choirs and stuff like that. Awesome. What, what, you mentioned you sang in choirs and things, but what all do you remember listening to growing up? You know, like whatever, you have any favorite bands or artists? Oh, yeah. Oh, my dad and mom had the best record collection and they kind of stopped collecting music when they had kids. So, and I was born in the eighties. So, you know, I missed a whole decade of, of music, which I think was okay for me because it, it meant that I got to sort of develop my taste in music. Um, through my parents, you know, era, and that was the best era for rock and roll of all. You know, we had Led Zeppelin and The Who and Jethro Tull and the band and, you know, Carol King and, I mean, Jackson Brown and, you know, uh, Bob Dylan. Uh, it was an amazing record collection and I got to d- dive deep into it. And my dad and mom actually let me play with the record player. So I was a vinyl junkie from, from early on. Nice. So when did you start, when would you say you started pursuing it more, you know, seriously as a career? I mean, you, you mentioned you were in choirs and, you know, listening to records and stuff, but that's, you know, a lot of people do that. When did, what do you think was the, the turning point in saying, I'm going to actually go try this thing? I performed a song that I had written, an original song uh, called River of Time for my entire school at a high school assembly, which was terrifying as a kid. Um, and I remember I was wearing mud boots and a pair of Carhartt pants and, um, kind of scuffling out on stage and nobody knew who I was. I was a real, I was a real shrinking violet, as they say. Um, and I went out and I performed the song and that was the day suddenly like people wanted to talk to me and it was a really strange thing. I wasn't popular by any means. I was still a weirdo, but, um, but it just sort of opened the door to me realizing that like if I if I wanted positive attention the best way to get it was through music um because I had pursued all the negative ways to get it let's just put it that way I was not not a super well-behaved teenager um so it was a better direction for me and it just was incredibly rewarding right off the top and from there I started I continued writing my own music and performing it at you know farmers markets and like arts and crafts festivals and just you know there were no real there wasn't the typical music industry, quote unquote, um, in Vermont. It was just a really small community of people. So I really just took any opportunity I could to, to get up on stage. Absolutely. Um, and then, of course, in 2002, you formed the rock band Grace Potter and the Nocturnals. How did that uh, formation actually happen? 
Yeah, so I went to college at St. Lawrence University for two years after taking a year off from school. I had made a couple of demos and one album, the ill-fated uh, Red Shoe Rebel album, which you should not try to find, nor can you, or if you do, I don't, I don't, I don't know. You shouldn't have that record. It's a very embarrassing recording. But after that recording, I, I realized that I had a lot to offer you know, musically, and I could do it myself. So I was a solo artist, you know, kind of cruising around selling CDs out of the back of my car. And I met Matt Burr, who was also a student at St. Lawrence, and he suggested that we start a rock band. And my first answer to him was no, because then I'd have to share the tip jar. Um, <laughs> I was barely scraping by, you know, playing solo gigs. Um, but he was persistent and continued to try to get me to join a band with him. And it was only when my classmate from Harvard Union High School, Corey Beard, um, his dad cornered me at a Christmas party when I went back home and said, my son is transferring from UMass. He doesn't have any friends and I'm really worried about him. And he's a great bass player. So can you just make a band so that he gets comfortable and has some friends when he first gets to St. Lawrence? And so the whole beginning and formation of that band was really about um, trying to welcome Corey to college and have him feel comfortable. And the only rehearsal time we could get was in this place called the Java Barn at two in the morning. So that's where the name the Nocturnals came from. Yeah, you got to kind of be a nocturnal animal a little bit to play in a band, especially in those early days. Um, Always, yeah. So, all right. So, I mean, I know you guys recorded what four albums as a band um yes you went solo like from 05 to 2012 or something and you had a bunch yeah of about a decade that, yeah yeah about a decade um so here comes the obligatory i have to ask about you know the famous song you're probably tired of talking about <laughs> but um paris ooh la la do you remember recording that because i feel like that's one of the ones that most people our listeners will recognize oh yeah i i mean when i wrote that song i had just gotten my flying v guitar and it was so exciting for me because i wanted to make a real rock record, like the kinks, you know, like I wanted to write like, girl, turn, turn, you really got me now. You got me. So I don't know what I'm doing. That was like, I, that's what I was going for. And I had barely, I barely knew how to play guitar. I was really just kind of banging around on it. And, um, and these chords came out and it was just this really rough, rugged sound. We recorded that song seven times before it was the right version um, because I was so determined for it to be a hit and no one else thought it was going to do anything. Everybody was like, this is a stupid song. The lyrics are silly. And you know, it sounds like a nursery rhyme. And I was like, exactly. That's so what's wrong with that. (laughs) And so we just, I just kept at it and I kept insisting that we continue recording it and chasing it down until we got the right version. And in fact, I even recorded a version of it with T-Bone Burnett that didn't work. Um, so there was a lot of different, uh, sonic explorations with that song over the course of about two and a half years before it ended up in its final form, which we recorded with Mark Batson on the eponymous Grace Potter and the Nocturnals album. Awesome. Uh, all right. So, you know, like we mentioned, you know, you had four, you know, successful albums there and some hits that people recognize. What, you know, what was it like? venturing out on your own for that first solo album was it nerve-wracking is it oh I, I might be leaving a good thing but at the same time you know you, you gotta you gotta give up one thing to be able to move on to something better or else you'll never know right. you know what like what what was that whole process like striking out solo well it wasn't actually really uh i didn't want to go solo it's just that the band didn't like any of my new songs <laughs> 
Isn't that so how it always I, happens? <laughs> it always happens that way. So I was, I had written all this music with the band, uh, and me and the Nocturnals went out to Joshua Tree, as every rock band does. We went out to Joshua Tree and hung out in the desert and wrote, like, for a month, we, like, tried everything and came up with all these cool ideas and sent it to the record company and the record company was like nope not gonna not gonna green light this album this is a bunch of you know hippie desert hooey and we don't like it and so you gotta go back to the drawing board and write a couple hit songs and then we'll let you know so another few months went by and that's when i uh ended up collaborating with uh the one and only eric valentine um on songwriting and pre-production for what would become the album Midnight, um, which was supposed to be a great slaughter in the Nocturnals record. But when I sent the newly minted demos to my band after our long, you know, excursion in the desert, and it was just like a totally new collection of songs that were almost unrecognizable from the original stuff that we had been coming up with, uh, it was just crickets. <laughs> the band did not even respond it was no it was just like it wasn't like cool can't wait to get the studio or this is awful and we're not into it It it's just nothing so um so I just continued forging ahead thinking that we were going to be making this record together and we did record a lot of it I mean the nocturnals played on the record and um my drummer Matt who was also my husband at the time was super supportive of it and was like let's do that you know this is going to be great even if it's weird and different let's let's try it and he and I were the founding members of the band anyway so it felt like you know there was there was a lot of exploration and honor and you know sort of um high hopes put into that record so it was it was really hard to watch the band kind of dissolve over a couple of poppy songs you know but um but it happens and and a lot of other things happened in the midst of that as well so um it was a really really crazy time in my life probably the, the craziest moment in my career which ultimately caused me to you know take pause and and really step back from my career um but I have absolutely no regrets it's still my favorite album I've ever made so <laughs> I think it was an emancipation that I needed even if I didn't know I needed it you know so you're saying that first solo album was the fa- your favorite for all those personal and professional reasons yeah it was a it was a wild time in my life I mean it was tumultuous and hard to make but it was really freeing to be able to just like dive into my like Donna Summers, like Cindy Lauper, Whitney Houston, like all the music that I loved so much from my childhood that wasn't in my parents' original record collection, but like some of that popular stuff, especially the talking heads. And, you know, the, I mean, I loved the band talk talk and there was like a lot of more punk rock, the blondie kind of vibe. Um, on the midnight record and for me that felt like exactly the right next step um and so you know creative creative differences are are one piece of that puzzle but I think also it was time for me to step uh in a new direction creatively and I you know didn't feel that unnatural for me but I think for the rest of the band everybody had to be true to themselves and um and that record to this day is, it's, it represents a massive shift in my confidence in myself and my creativity, you know? Awesome. And, uh, how do you think that you, you know, your sound, your artistry evolved, uh, between, you know, 
Midnight, which was 2015, and Daylight. I always thought it's kind of cool that those titles sort of <laughs> mirrored each other. A little sure. Bit. But um, I mean totally. that third that third one you you know got two Grammy nom- nominations from. So you know by yeah. You know, how do you think you you you? I mean, how do you think your sound sort of evolved between those two? Well, I think I matured a lot, and so you know when I when I go back to the album Midnight, I can hear like the burning fire of a creative soul emerging from a cocoon because I want to be a big beautiful rocking butterfly and then with daylight I think there's a lot of humility and there's a lot of humanity in that record and it's a very mature collection of music that really does kind of wrap its wrap its arms around all of my influences and all of the stories of my life and things that brought me to the place that I am and you know I'm 37 now I'm a big grown-up woman girl person and <laughs> that's that's a very different place than when I when I set out to record Midnight, you know, in my early 30s. Um, it was just a very different life. And I, I was basically a different person at the time. Um, so I, I really do see those records as bookends for a, a massive shift and a, a progress, a progression in my life that um, I never expected to have happen, you know, uh, but life Life happens when you're busy making plans. <laughs> exactly. There's a reason that phrase, you know, is a thing. Um, yeah, exactly. All right, cool. Well, you know, I'm a big country fan too, and uh, I know we got to talk about your your collab mm. with Kenny Chesney. Um, My man, Kenny. Right. How did how did you guys, you know, pass you know across orbits and you know just memories of you know you and Tequila and what was the other one, Wild Child. Wild Child, uh, you know, it's so funny. Um, it's the 10th anniversary of the release of You and Tequila this month. And that, to me, is just wild because I remember getting the cold call from Kenny. And it wasn't actually from Kenny. It was from his publicist, Holly Gleason, who was a family friend of my parents and, like, a loosely affiliated friend. Barely knew her, but just, you know, um, I used to paint houses in Martha's Vineyard, and she had a Martha's Vineyard connection. And so by way of some families who had hired me to paint their houses, Holly somehow got my phone number and uh, said, well, Kenny was floating around in St. John and I had stuck your CD into a pile of um, like a shuffle on his CD player on his boat in St. John. And he didn't know it. um, So she just kind of snuck it in (laughs) to his boat and he was listening to, you know, a CD changer on shuffle and my song Apologies came on. And apparently he just laid there, you know, as he tells it, he just laid there looking up at the stars one night on his boat floating around and, and said, that's the voice. That's the voice I want for this song, you and tequila and called Holly and said, I don't know who stuck this CD in my CD player, but I want her. I want that voice. I'm going to go get her. So, um, that, that was the auspicious moment where I accidentally became a country singer. <laughs> Man, very clever to sneak that song onto his boat. That's great. Um, no, thank you, Holly. She's full of all the best ideas. Holly and Kenny Chesney, now forever, you know, intertwined with your career. So cool. Yep. Um, awesome. Well, you mentioned apologies. Um, didn't you perform that on One Tree Hill one time, too? I did, yes. One Tree Hill was, uh, was a big... Um, Mark Schwann, the music supervisor of One Tree Hill, was a, a big fan of mine. I actually uh, made a guest appearance on the show as an actor playing myself, but like a street musician version of myself, which is ridiculous. <laughs> um, not super proud of that performance, but I did get to score the show that week. And 
So I got to reimagine the theme song and I got to score all the dialogue, you know, put the music behind the entire episode, which was so fun. That's kind of always been my dream gig is to score for, for film and TV. So, um, it was a really big moment. And I think all of those, those TV moments when my songs find their way into shows like One Tree Hill or Grey's Anatomy or, you know, uh, American Idol and The Voice have used my songs a lot. It's, it's a really big testament to the fact that music is part of a storytelling process and a, a really powerful way to connect emotional moments in, in our lives with, um, with a musical memory that gets imprinted in your mind. And, you know, I know a lot of people who say like, I'll never forget where I was when I heard, you know, X, Y, Z song playing. Um, and I've since had so many more opportunities to do things like that. I've got the, I, I do the theme music for the show, Frankie and Grace, um, which I don't know if you've ever seen that show, but it's awesome. Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin just being amazing, hilarious people. Think it, isn't it, isn't it Grace and Frankie? I think it's Flip. Oh, Grace and yeah. Frankie. See, yeah, I get, I get it all mixed up. Um, it's a cover. Isn't it a Steelers Grace. wheel cover? It is. Yeah. You know, stuck in the middle with you. And then, um, and then, you know, I had 10 years with Disney, so I had opportunities to write music and perform music on a bunch of films, uh, which was really, really fun for me. Cause it's, you know, I think as a little girl, I definitely grew up thinking I was going to be, you know, a cartoon voice in a Disney movie. So that, that actually came true. Yeah. It can remind us how, uh, that came true. I mean, my little niece Holly is obsessed with Tangled and your, there, your song is something that I want on the end credits. How'd that come about? That's right. <laughs> it, well, actually, it's a really funny story. That song was supposed to be in a different movie, which was the film with Isla Fisher called Confessions of a Shopaholic. And it didn't get used in the movie. Um, it didn't end up getting placed in the movie in the spot that they had wanted it. So it just sort of sat in the Disney music archive. And um, the Disney music group has, you know, a, a large artillery of songwriters and songs that are ready and available at any time. And I think they were digging around when they were making the Rapunzel film and they were sort of um, writing out the script for it and fell upon this forgotten song. I want something that I want for the Confessions of a Shopaholic movie and ended up really feeling like that was something they wanted to pursue. They just needed me to change some lyrics around. So they sent me the script and I listened to it and it was immediately obvious. Like this song is so right for this movie. It just needs, it needs lyrics that tell the story of Rapunzel. Uh, and, and it was so, so fun. It was one of my favorite collaborations ever. It's a really, really wonderful project. Awesome. Well, uh, one more on the whole animated uh, and TV scoring, movie scoring dream job that you mentioned. Um, you, didn't you also join the Flaming Lips for Tim Burton? Yes. Yeah. I, I, and I've worked with Tim on a couple of films. He did, um, Tim Burton did all the Alice in Wonderland series. And, um, so there was a, there was a collaboration there with the amazing Jefferson Airplane song, White Rabbit. And Tim and his team really enjoyed that process. And, um, and I get to meet Danny Elfman and, you know, sort of get a, a little, again, the vision into that world of scoring film and TV, which was just such a dream for me. Um, and so when Tim Burton put together the Frank and Weenie film, um, you know, it was just so spectacularly bizarre with all the stop motion animation, the dog. And, um, it was, it was a huge project for, for Disney and for Tim's team. So uh, it took a long time. So they had a lot of time to prepare and, and get the music um, 
in there. And when I saw the film, it wasn't quite finished yet, but it just clearly was like, this is as weird as anything. Who are the weirdest people I know? The Flaming Lips. I'm going to call Wayne. So Wayne and I had already had a couple of fun collaborations and adventures and misadventures together before that. So um, it felt like the right moment to tap into that collaboration. It was one of my weirdest memories ever um, flying to, you know, flying to his house and in uh, Oklahoma city and, and going to his studio and, and recording that. But it was, it was wonderful. That's so cool. And that you got to meet Danny Elfman, man. What a genius, man. Edward, yeah. his Batman theme. I mean, just everything. Uh, Unbelievable. Um, it's a really cool, it's a really cool team that, that Tim has and, and Danny is such a signature piece of that sound. So I, I was, I was honored to be included. So cool. Um, well, you've been generous with your time. Um, we'll wrap this way. I know, you know, you've, man, you've pretty much played like every major music festival around. I think I've seen you on bills at Coachella, Lollapalooza, Bonnaroo, everywhere. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. Yep. Talk, but talk about how rewarding it was to start your own uh, up in Vermont. I guess, what's it called? Grand Point North. Grand Point North. Yeah. My festival is, it's a really, it's a huge piece of my heart because, you know, everybody always asks you when you start out, especially in music, but if you're in music at all, there's that fun question that everybody asks everybody, which is if you could throw a music festival anywhere with anybody, who would it be? You know, so you get this kind of blank slate. What would you do? What would your dream lineup be? And that's where the conversation started. And this was almost 15 years ago when I started having it with my dear friend and collaborator, uh, Alex Crothers uh, at Higher Ground. And we had been walking the site at the waterfront in Burlington, Vermont, which is a beautiful marina with a gorgeous view of the Adirondack Mountains and a big, gorgeous lake you know, in front of us. And it just always seemed like an amazing site for a festival. Um, and so we started guinea pigging that site, kind of like what we're doing with these drive-in shows, actually, where we didn't know if it would work. We didn't know what size stage would fit. We didn't know if there'd be enough infrastructure for the parking and, you know, where, where do the bathrooms go? Where, you know, all those little things that you have to think about. And it turned into, um, one of the most successful moments in all of, uh, you know, all of Vermont music history. It created something that was never there before, which was an opportunity to bring in, you know, fans and bands from out of the state of Vermont and share a slice of my home state and the culture that is so special and so singular to Vermont with the world. And, you know, we've had so many countless incredible acts play this was supposed to be our 10th anniversary um in 2020 it would have been our 10th anniversary which has been postponed but um you know i mean countless incredible bands and yeah you know i i I can't even list them all off but we've had uh a, a plethora of joyful moments to celebrate and it's always been sort of musician based you know the the experience of the musicians and sharing what i feel is the best of Vermont with people from out of state uh, while also respecting and loving the community that I came from. It's just, it's just so, so near and dear to my heart. I can't wait to get it going again and finally celebrate a decade of, of Grand Point North. 
Awesome. Well, I'll encourage all our listeners to check out Grand Point North Festival when when it's back, uh, when life returns a little more normal here. But in the meantime, meantime, don't miss uh, this weekend at the Frederick Fairgrounds. Grace Potter will be here in Frederick, Maryland. Uh, Everyone, come check it out, uh, and especially from Mother's Day, too. Whether you're a mom or not, it'll be a great show. Any any final words you want to say on, on, you know, come on out? Yeah, I was just going to say, dads out there, if you want to look super cool for your moms and surprise them, because flowers are boring and flowers are also totally not available because apparently that you know the flower growing season has been shortened due to covid don't get your wife or girlfriend or mother of whoever your baby daddy child is flowers get him a ticket to the go see a rock concert it is an incredible way to surprise it's better than chocolates it's better than flowers and uh i promise i won't disappoint <laughs> Yeah, you can either, obviously you can sit in your car, but most people I, if I've seen, uh, are sitting, you know, you basically, it's a, it's like they put, put their chairs outside and it's almost like, you know, your own personal tailgate right by the stage. So it really is. It's, it's, I have to say, I, I'm going to be, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with concerts after this because it's almost like everybody gets their own VIP section. Um, and with the way that the Frederick show is set up, it really is everybody gets a good view. There's no version of it where, um, anybody is not able to see the stage. And I think that's something that makes it extra special and intimate, even though it's, it's got plenty of room for everybody. So, um, I'm, I'm super excited to get back there. It was definitely one of my favorite venues. And I'm so, so glad to have been able to talk to you about it today. This has been the most in-depth radio interview I've done in a long time. So, I mean, we could have written a book on this thing by now. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was so great talking to you. No, thanks for making so much time. We really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.